Hey everyone, this podcast is brought to you by the Classic Learning Test, a classically based alternative to the SAT and ACT, which is the fastest growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 130 colleges now accept the CLT, and many of these colleges have endorsed it as their preferred college admissions test. Students benefit from same-day results and can share them with colleges at no additional charge. To learn more, head over to cltexam.com. Again, that's cltexam.com to learn more or to register. Welcome back to Libromania, a podcast for the book-obsessed, featuring interviews with contemporary authors, discussions about key figures and movements in literary history, examinations of various genres and current events in the literary world, and celebrations of all the things that make books worth celebrating, bookstores, book design, book collecting, and so forth. I'm David Kern. This is chapter 12, in which I chat with bookshop owner Warren Farha about the experience of running an independent bookstore in 2019. Uh, I love it when people come in here and enjoy themselves, and I think that that has consequences that you can't measure. They grow to love the place, and that can only result down the road in more people coming in, more people buying things ultimately. We have people come in all the time who, I mean, you can't remember the last time they bought something, but they interact, and they just quietly go about their business, You know, which I have no trouble with that at all. Warren Farha is the proprietor of Eighth Day Books in Wichita, Kansas, a bookstore that is concerned primarily with finding the best in religion, philosophy, history, and literature. Housed in three levels of a, quote, quasi-Dutch barn house, end quote, Eighth Day Books carries thousands and thousands of titles, 60% of which are new books. But each of these titles is chosen because they conform to a specific vision. Several years ago, in Image Journal, issue number 46, Warren wrote that he would, quote, live and die for Father Alexander Schmemann's insistence that you can't compartmentalize reality. You can't separate the religious from the secular. I believe that doing so is a denial of God's good creation, he said. So, Farah and his staff has curated the books at Eighth Day Books to meet that vision, to fulfill that vocation. They're perhaps best known for a large, large collection of the works of C.S. Lewis, an extensive poetry collection, and also an extensive collection of books for Orthodox Christians and on Orthodox theology. Years ago, when working on an article about Eighth Day Books, I realized that Eighth Day was the rare bookstore in which every stream of the Christian church, every stream of Christian thought and faith was considered with equal sincerity and seriousness that each stream of the Christian faith was represented in this bookstore. Eighth Day was first opened in September of 1988 in a rented space of only about 1,500 square feet with a few, quote, lovingly chosen books staffed by the owner and one part-time employee, end quote. Since then, the staff has expanded, the stacks has expanded, and even the space has expanded. But, of course, since 1988, the world of book selling has also changed quite a bit. Warren and his crew at Eighth Day have had to contend with the rising of Amazon and the closing of independent bookstores all over the country. So Eighth Day had to adapt. And of course, like everybody else, they formed a website. But they also emphasized traveling, going to events. They've been to our event here at the Searcy Institute, Calvin College's Festival of Faith and Writing, Baylor's Symposium on Faith and Culture, and many other conferences. And in doing so, they have been able to expand their reach, meet new people, and fulfill that vocation. 
For a long time, I've wanted to chat on a podcast with Warren Farha. And so I'm grateful that he came on today to chat with me about the experience of running a bookshop, the challenges that go with that, but also the ways that it's exciting and the ways that you can, as a bookstore, mean something to a community. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Warren Farha, proprietor of Eighth Day Books in Wichita, Kansas. Well, let me start here. Whenever I talk to people who, who run bookstores and you know, spend their day-to-day around books, this is, the, this is my... It's a simple question, but it's kind of my, my go-to place to start. What is your favorite thing about running a bookstore, running a bookshop? Um, it's really putting together what I aspire to achieve here at the store, and that's the perfect constellation of books that represent the best of what's thought and written, you know, in the history of humankind. That's a crazy aspiration, but, <laughs> yeah. but that is my aspiration. So I'm working hard every day to curate the inventory to make it better and better and better. Hmm. And so after 30 years, <laughs> that's still the ideal. Do, does it still excite you or do you, is it kind of, you mentioned it's been 30 years. Is it wear you out or does it still excite you, that, that quest? No, that quest doesn't wear me out. Hmm. Um, that's always an exciting quest. Hmm. And it's always introducing me to new books, books by authors that I've known but haven't known of those particular books or oh, yeah. Yeah. new authors that I've just found out have been very influential on authors that I do know. Hmm. So that requires looking at footnotes and paying attention to bibliographies hmm. and minutiae like that, yeah. I really get a charge out of finding this new source, this new fountainhead of thought yeah. or creativity that has unknown to most of us has been very influential mm. in any certain field. Mm. How many titles are in the store? About 25,000. And, and have you made... Um... Have you individually made a decision, you know, a very specific decision to have that title there? Um, and I've made the decision on every single title. Yes. So, what are all the different elements that go into that decision? I mean, do you? How much time do you have to spend balancing that quest that you were talking about with also the sort of realities of, of selling books? Yeah. Right. yeah. Oh, so, how do you balance that? Um, it's getting a sense of the marketability of, of certain books. You know, you have to pay attention to price, of course. Mm. Um, a lot of books in the fields that we specialized in are considered professional or academic titles, mm-hmm. which carry a much lower discount for most presses, mm. university oh, yeah. presses, etc. Mm. So sometimes the price is just prohibitive for walk-in trade people. Yeah. Now, we have a wider sort of acceptance hmm. from our customers as to price because they understand that the kind of books that they're looking for are just going to carry a higher price. They're specialized. They're yeah. obscure. For whatever reason, their price is going to be higher yeah. than the yeah. average trade title. Hmm. So that's a concern that I have to pay attention to. I have to pay attention to our accounts payables. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I can't just order whatever I want, whenever I want. Yeah. Um, and that that's a difficult tension to navigate because there are so many books that I know we should have on the shelf and it's just not feasible at a particular time. 
do you have to spend a lot of time balancing the question of, you know, um, I guess contemporary books and contemporary authors with the classic works? Like when someone walks into your shop, do you, I mean, do you want people to say, oh, basically every kind of classic book is going to be there? You know, all the, you know, the main, the major titles. And yeah, if I go, that certainly, that, that's a difficult balance to achieve. Um, yeah. And, you know, that, that canon of classic authors in the several fields that we specialize in increases in size, you know, year by year, decade by decade. Yeah, yeah. And then you'll find this classic author who said that such and such a book was the most brilliant thing I've ever read and it changed my life. Hmm. And so then that introduces you to a whole new author, a whole <laughs> new list of their titles, et cetera. Hmm. So, yeah, it's it's a tricky business. <laughs> Do you find that... Uh, I, this is kind of a... I'm trying to think of exactly how to ask this. You spend your days in the stacks, I guess, right? Um, I spend... Actually, I, I sum up... I, I tell people what I'm doing, and I, and I say I'm ordering stuff and paying people. Okay. <laughs> That's basically what I do for most of the day. Mm. Of course, there are some days when I am down walking around in the sales floor and talking to customers and mm. sometimes shelving or quite often pulling books for a conference that we're doing offsite. Oh, sure. Yeah. And that's a that's an intense kind of grueling activity where you just basically browse all your shelves and pull pull the books that you need for any particular conference. So I'm guessing conferences that can tell you this is what would be best. Give us these titles. That probably is pretty helpful. <laughs> yeah. Do you, is that the way you envisioned? I mean, when you started the shop, did you... Absolutely did you imagine, not. You, yeah, you imagined nope. yourself. You were going to be in the stacks talking to people, talking about books. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I was raised in retail sales. And not the, not the business accounting end of that, but in the retail sales floor end of that. Hmm. And so I was always on the sales floor waiting on people. Hmm. Um, and I thought that's what I would be doing here. Yeah. I had this romantic idea of sitting at the front counter and sipping my coffee <laughs> and browsing yeah. through new books. Yeah. And, and walking that someone romantic, to that book that's going to change their life. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. romantic idea was shattered in about the first three weeks, you know. Huh. I was going to ask you, how long did, the, did disillusionment set in? <laughs> And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a depressing disillusionment. It was just a, a complete shift of of expectations. And mm. I mean, it, it came about kind of naturally, but suddenly, you know, in the first one or two months that we were open, we we did two or three offsite events. I didn't expect that kind of thing at all. Okay. Huh. Did it change the, your? passion for the project that is the shop? I mean, did it, or did it change the way you thought about your kind of the calling or, or you know, the, that, that goal that you set for yourself that, that you couldn't be in the, in the stacks? Did, it, did that change that, that way you thought about it? It adjusted it because now I was ordering not just for the local clientele, but for particular audiences that we might be, whose location we might have to travel to. Yeah, and, yeah, and that would have that would have a specific focus. So it kind of changed the numbers and the breadth of selection in particular areas. Like for instance, I would say in the past um, fifteen years, let's say 
education conferences have been of rising importance for us. I mean, that that's a whole arena of conferences that we didn't experience until, you know, about 15 years ago. Circe was one of the first. It was the first education conference that we served. Hmm. And it's been joined by at least two and sometimes more per year hmm. where we attend the convention, the annual convention for an education, classical education. Yeah, I want to specify classical Christian education. Hmm. Uh, these these events come up much more frequently than than in the beginning, for sure. But um, it's all happened in the last fifteen years. It kind of reflects the rise and influence of the classical education movement. Mm. Um, mm. So, and then before that uh, was the uh, was Christianity and the arts, or the arts and faith, and that yeah. kind of began really surging in the mid-90s to late 90s, and it's still a very, very important part of our conference mix. Hmm. When did you get connected with the Glenn Workshop and Image? Because you've been going um, there for many years, right? We have. Uh, 97 was our first year, so we've been hmm. doing the Glenn wow. Workshop annually for you know 22 years. Hmm. Hmm. And we'll go back uh, this coming August, uh, as usual. Uh, one of our favorite conferences, for sure. Do you find that people who discovered you at conferences become more than just conference buyers? Um, yes. It's not as frequent as you might assume. Yeah. I mean, usually our encounters with those customers are the, the one time a year when they actually lay lay hands and eyes on the books. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the incarnate element of this thing is really... You can't emphasize it too much. Mm. Yeah, even doing mail order, um, when we'd send out the huge fat catalog that we used to send out, that was really an incarnate effort. I mean, people held this weighable piece of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it's a book of in, paper in their hands. Yeah. And they, they could browse through it. Yeah. You know, for days or weeks or years, we have people call who have a catalog that's seven or eight years old <laughs> to order books because they love that kind of shopping much more than just looking at a screen and doing it digitally. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, about 10 years ago, maybe whatever it was, it seemed like bookshops of new books that were not, you know, massive chains or Amazon were having a hard time surviving. You know, many famous yeah. bookshops closed in New York and in Portland and Seattle and Chicago and all San Francisco. But you guys withstood that sort of dramatic uh, sea change in the way the books were sold. And even now as Amazon, you know, many, many books are still sold and Barnes and Nobles are closing and Borders is gone and all that. But A2A Books is, is still there. What would you attribute that longevity and your kind of endurance through that era? What do you, what do you attribute that to? Um, well, part of it is that we don't have the cost, cost of doing business pressures that stores in major metropolitan areas have, ah. uh, rents and leases and such are, are just extremely low here in this part of the country than they are elsewhere. All kinds of business costs are much lower than in New York city or Seattle or, um, San Francisco or wherever. So that I think that's one big difference. The other is that we're more specialized. 
you know, we're not trying to compete on every single book in the universe. Oh, yeah. With Amazon, yeah. Uh, there are many categories that we just don't have to worry about. Um, mm. Cookbooks, travel books, uh, romance novels, uh, mm. computer books. I mean, I can mention countless categories that we just don't have to worry about. Mm. So that reduces the inventory pressures. Ah, okay. We can do what we know best and care about the most. Mm. Mm. Um, and then we just, we we love our people. We love the customers. I, I just think we have the greatest clientele in the universe mm. and who are often very, very loyal. Mm. Mm. And um, Is that them coming in the door that I hear that noise? Is that people yeah, walking that's the in? front door. <laughs> I'm up in the office, which is the third floor. And every time the front door opens, it, rings a bell. So, hey, you got, you got customers. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, it's a good sound. We like to hear that sound. Yeah. So you also have kind of become known, it seems to me anyway, um, as one of the great suppliers of all things Inklings. It seems like you have at least gained a reputation for that, especially at events and things like that. How did that happen? Was that was that your goal back in, you know, 30 years ago when you were starting, or did that happen sort of because that's oh, what that, the clientele wanted? That happened when I was 16 years old and hmm. encountered C.S. Lewis for the first time and changed my life hmm. and shaped my life in many hmm. ways. Enriched me intellectually and spiritually to a degree that it's hard to explain. Uh, made me aware of of the importance of the beauty, not just of theology and apologetics and all of that, but of literature, of mythology, of philosophy. So many fields were opened to me by Lewis and company. Hmm. And so when I opened the store, it was the perfect opportunity to repay that debt, I think, in a real significant way that I really felt a debt of of gratitude that I needed to acknowledge. And so from the very first day, we've had that commitment to Lewis and the Inklings. C.S. Lewis and Friends is what we name the category here in the store. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, and I, I believe that he's uh, just important to a degree that we, we can't even, we can't comprehend. Hmm. Um, hmm. He never gets old. He's always relevant. I mean, I read lots of journals, book reviews, and they're quoted all the time. Almost every day I find people citing him. Hmm. So, so that, that's why they're at the center of our, they're one of the focal points of the store. Are they your largest kind of category of sales? Just in terms of, you know, I haven't really done the calculations. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But yeah, they're, they're up at the top. I mean, they're rivaled by certain categories like Eastern Christendom or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the education section itself, mainly due to conferences. I mean, the sales of those are, are high. Hmm. But, but Lewis and Friends is among the top categories. Hmm. Before I let you go, I just I'm curious what you where you see the um, the world of bookshops headed over the next you know little while. I mean, Amazon powerful as ever. Barnes and Noble, not powerful as ever. Um, it does seem like there are independent booksellers popping up, and of course, people are still buying used books. It seems the numbers seem to show, from what research I've done, that people are reading 
that you know yeah. that that that's still happening uh, as much as ever. Um, well, maybe not as much as ever, but, but more 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 than it was uh, recently. So, where do you see the world of your world of of bookselling, of especially the independent bookselling, headed? Um, I see the new generation of bookstores having some kind of meeting place component to them, whether that be an attached restaurant, an attached coffee shop, mm, mm. or just an attached meeting space for community events, for book signings, for author appearances, mm. extremely, increasingly, extremely necessary to the existence of new bookstores. Mm. Um, something that we've done since, well, just a few years after we opened is mixing used with new books. Mm. I think that that's a critical piece of surviving or thriving in the marketplace these days. Uh, mm. So, you know, there's a book called The Third Place, and it's a whole, it's really a, a whole concept of, of uh, an entity becoming not just a commercial sales uh, venue, but also a place where people meet, people, you know, communities form, uh, I think that's just increasingly important. Mm-hmm. I don't see how a generalist bookstore survives now. I mean, mm-hmm. unless they're really established and loved by their community, um, I think you've got to have books plus. Mm-hmm. Now, what we've tried not to do is to reduce our book inventory in order to make room for sidelines of all sorts, toys, games, you know, I, I don't know all the categories that <laughs> Barnes and Noble stocks, yeah, you know, just... but, but I do know that they've, that their book, the book percentage of their stores has, has declined um, precipitously in the last 10 years. I was recently in a really big Barnes and Noble around here, or one that used to be really big, and I, their poetry selection I was horrified to notice was down to like eight titles on an end cap, and it had been taken over by board games and T-shirts and mugs and gadgets. And yeah, I, the, the, I don't know how you run a bookstore and I just, have eight titles, and they were all the poetry titles were like Instagram poets. You know, unbelievable. Kind of it's like that's a different world. <laughs> It's not even a bookstore anymore. We have a significant poetry section. I'm talking hundreds and I don't know. I could look at the right spot in my computer and we might have a thousand titles in, in poetry. Hmm. Um, do they it, sell? Just They do. Hmm. Mostly at conferences. Yeah, yeah. But we, I see browsers over there just sitting and reading yeah. all the time. Yeah. So it's a hugely important category for us here. Okay, I have two quick questions for you. Um, I've always wondered about um, people who run bookshops. If if someone walks into the bookshop and just browses and sits for an hour and reads, but then doesn't end up buying anything, does that drive you crazy? No, not really. No, that's that's part of the deal. Yeah, uh, I love it when people come in here and enjoy themselves, and I think that that has consequences that you can't measure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess they're building a relationship with you when they do that too. They are. Yeah. And, and they, they grow to love the place and that can only result down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And, and more people coming in 
Uh, more people buying things. Ultimately, hmm. we have people come in all the time who, I mean, you can't remember the last time they bought something, but they interact. <laughs> they they don't cause trouble. Yeah, and yeah. they just quietly go about their business. You know, which I have no trouble with that at all. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, before I let you go, here's my last question: What is the last great thing? that you read that really surprised you? So maybe something you've never read before, but the last great book that... Or, or the, maybe a book that you were you read and you'd never read it before and you said, this has to be on, in the stacks in my shop. Oh, well, I, I've read three or four books in the last couple of months that fit what you just described. One is a memoir called Black Dog of Fate. Hmm. Uh, it's the memoir of, a, of an Armenian-American. He's... He was raised in the New Jersey suburbs in the 1950s and 60s, uh, teaches at Colgate University, I think. Mm. Now he's a poet, mm. so he's had quite a bit of his poetry published, but he was raised in an Armenian-American family. And so the, the first half of the book is mostly about his coming of age in suburban New Jersey in the 1960s, 70s. But then the second half of the book is his real discovery of his grandparents' generation and their endurance of what's become known as the Armenian Genocide, contemporary with World War I in Turkey, and uh, uh, just a harrowing story of what the Armenians in Turkey went through. Mm. Between a million and two million of them were killed in that mm. terrible couple years there mm. in 1915 and 16. And what's that book called again? The Black Dog of Fate. The Black Dog of Fate. Okay. And you and you immediately got that in, into the shop? Immediately. Yeah. Plus a whole bunch of books on the background of that Armenian genocide. Mm. So yeah. that that that's an example. Uh, yeah. Another book was uh, a collection of essays on the Philokalia, mm. the famous um, anthology of... Eastern Christian texts on prayer and the spiritual life. Hmm. Uh, and it was just a super enlightening uh, look at the origins and, and development of that anthology. So th- those are a couple of examples, uh, hmm. b- books that have really informed me in new ways and enriched. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's enriched our inventory. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's what a book can do. I mean, you read a good book like that, and it it just enriches uh, the offerings that you can serve to people uh, hmm. from then on. Well, again, thank you so much to Warren Farhoff for joining me. If you want to learn more about Eighth Day Books, you can head over to eighthdaybooks.com. You can request a catalog, uh, take a look at all of their collections, and maybe even check out where they're going to be on the road this spring and summer. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Remember, subscribe, rate, review, help us spread the word. I'd really appreciate that. And for all of us here at the network, thanks so much for listening. I'm David Kern. Look forward to talking to you next week. Mm-hmm.